They buried me in the water and I came, I knew. Ha <laughs> ha! Now I'm baptized in blood. What's up, Sheepdog? Welcome to the Changing the Culture podcast. That was my boy at One Time Music. Go look him up on all the socials, Instagram. You can go find all of his music. That song is called Baptized in Blue. You're going to be able to listen to that at the end of this podcast episode. I hope you enjoy this episode and I hope you enjoy One Time's music. He's a fellow police officer. He's the man. I love this guy. Go listen to his shit. What's up, Sheepdog Nation? So, this podcast episode is a kick-ass episode. You get to meet um, Dave Acosta. He's a former Las Vegas police officer. He was on their SWAT team. He has uh, been deployed uh, overseas and working with uh, Navy SEALs and special ops teams. This guy's the real deal. He's a badass, but he's humble as hell. Uh, he created what he calls Fight Back Nation. He's uh, does training all around the world on mass shootings and um, how we can stop them and what to do if you know you are involved in one. He is such a wealth of knowledge, and this conversation you're gonna you're just gonna learn so much from because as we're just him and I are just in this conversation, you're just gonna hear us both go, "Oh, that was good." Oh, damn. And then I even went and made one of something that he said in here. I went and made it a meme because the quote was just so kick ass. I'm so excited for you to meet him. He's going to be starting off this episode by telling you a little bit about himself. Enjoy. Uh, quick background former police officer out of Las Vegas, did nine years in North Las Vegas. Uh, most of it was SWAT as the point man, two years in Seattle with the King County Sheriff's Office. Um, and that was right after. 9-11, so I uh, was involved with writing the plans for the counterterrorism unit there that they started after 9-11, and then, uh, I don't know, I guess we'll talk about the rest as we get going, right? Well, so, yeah, I'm so excited to have you here. So tell me, tell us a little bit about, like, what are you doing nowadays? What are you up to? Uh, so we have two, we have two different things. Um, you know, after, after I left law enforcement active duty in 2003, um, I started a nonprofit officer survival course that wow. uh, we went national. So we trained all over the country. Um, at the time, we were just competing with Caliber Press because we knew we could do a better job. They, they had kind of sold out. Um, they were good. But um, and then I ended up in Iraq uh, as a contractor working with a team of former SEALs. And it uh, that changed the course of my direction, you know, um, I did uh, about 10 years in Iraq, Afghanistan, started my own company. We spent a lot of time in uh, all over Africa. We trained um, recovery teams for kidnapping in Mexico, as well as SWAT teams. Right now on the tactical side, our biggest client is Brazil. We train about 200 tactical officers a year in Brazil. Wow. Uh, plus civilians. And then the other company we have that just kind of grew legs and started its own thing recently um, is Fight Back Nation, uh, which is a, uh, a company we, we've trained over 7,000 teachers on how to survive a mass shooting. Uh, we've also worked with lots of corporations. 
And um, since you and I talked last time, it looks like um, we, we've been invited to certify our training here through the University of Utah. And um, we're already doing work with workers comp. So wow, a lot of good stuff on that side. You know, we need to get the word out on how to survive mass shooting. So and I'm so nope. excited to talk to you about it because, <laughs> yeah, you know, let me just, I want to back up. How does a police officer go and friggin' deploy with Navy SEALs? Like, let's talk about that. Yeah, that's a, a super unique story. Um, what happened was in, um, so obviously, you know, by January of 2004, we've got Iraq and Afghanistan going on and um, contracting as far as the general public knows was a new thing. It really wasn't, but it was kind of all of a sudden in front of everybody. Blackwater had most of the big contracts for what's called PSD. Um, so that's like a personal security detail um, or protective, protective services detail. Um, and there was a small company, there was two. So there was SOC, which was owned by two Navy SEALs. And then there was Triple Canopy, which was owned by special forces guys, which are Army Green Beret. Those two smaller companies were also competing for these uh, high-end protective detail contracts. And um, someone introduced me to the two owners of SOC. Um, they knew uh, what I was teaching for officer survival. Uh, basically the premise behind what I was teaching was, even if you get shot in the heart, if you've got 30 seconds of adrenaline, do you want to spend your 30 seconds calling on the radio or do you want to go finish the fight? Mm. And that's just me. Mm -hmm. I was like, dude, I, I just not believe in going out a victim. Right. Um, and that's what we were training around the world. I mean, around, around the nation, we had some amazing cops that had survived shit. They should have never, no human being should survive because they're, they weren't willing to die. And so we were featuring them. We would travel all over the nation with these different stories and have these guys on stage telling their story and your jaw hit the floor. And then at the end of the presentation, someone would introduce you to a cop in their jurisdiction that had a crazier story. So these, these SEALs, I think they were intrigued by that because that's how their brain already works. We talked, they found out I had a lot of overseas experience already uh, in Mexico doing some, some pretty crazy stuff. And they said, hey, you wanna give this a try? Um, they took a chance on me, you know? And again, they're not active duty anymore. You know, they were, they were active duty. Now they've left and created a company Mm -hmm. to compete for these contracts. But regardless, at the time when I went over, they were probably, that company employed mostly former SEALs and um, special forces guys out of the army. So I was definitely new to that environment. Their lingo was different, um, but I learned a lot. And, and actually since then I've come back and shared, you know, on the corporate stage uh, numerous times, I've talked about leadership and teamwork and I, you know, as a point man on a SWAT team in Las Vegas, we were a full-time team. You think you understand teamwork. You think you understand the dynamics of, t you know, tactical missions. Um, but let's be honest. Uh, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, the bad guy picks when, where, and how they hit you. They always outnumber you. They're shooting rounds that go through your vest. They're using explosives. None of this was things that we dealt with even in a full-time SWAT team in Vegas. So it was like a whole nother level. And uh, I loved everything about it. It, it, I, it was a huge opportunity for me to learn from some of these elite, elite warriors. Unbelievable. 
Yeah, it's a crazy story. <laughs> and, and the thing I love about you, Dave, is like you get to talk about two different things that actually that so many people just are intrigued by police work and Navy SEALs. <laughs> like people love that shit. And so what can you talk about that for a minute? Like, tell me, like, I want to hear like, how different was it to work with a bunch of SEALs versus working with officers? Like, how is the mentality different? Well, the mentality was really different, but first of all, I want to qualify that and say that the environments were different. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, so let me talk just for a second about law enforcement. The, we were, you know, my understanding before I went, cause I didn't know any better was I understood what it meant to have a bond with your teammates. Um, and we did, we, you know, we, we risked our lives together and, uh, but in, in law enforcement, uh, just to give you an example, let's say that you have uh, an officer involved shooting, the officer's trapped, and they've called SWAT. And so you've got an active shooter and an officer down. I mean, that, that's one of the worst case scenarios, right? You come in, you're getting, you, you have a perimeter set up, you have good communication, uh, you have tools, you know, at your disposal on a full-time team, um, protective gear, and you probably have the layout of the location. So you're coming into something and as you come in, you're getting a ton of Intel. So it's a known environment that you're going to start controlling. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the end of the day, whether you're training or whether you're, you're actually responding to an incident, like I just described, mm -hmm. we all get to go home to our families. We all get to go have a barbecue. We all get to tuck our kids into bed, you know, so forth and so on. In Iraq, um, everything that happened was on somebody else's timetable. They picked when, and where and how they were going to ambush you. They outnumbered you. And so everything was 100% reactive mm. um, on the fly, on the move. It's called getting off the X. You'd be ambushed or something. And, you know, if a vehicle was disabled by an IED, you're trying to get your guys out. You're trying to return fire because there's a, there's a, a, a secondary ambush. And at the end of the day, when you go home, you don't go home to your family. You don't go to a barbecue. At the end of the day, when you go home, you go home to the guys that you were just with mm. and you do that for, you know, the contracts, all the contracts I did were a hundred days out 30 at home. Wow. So you're out there for a hundred days at a time. And um, it was just another level. And again, it's two different environments. So I'm not taking away anything from SWAT, but you had to be dialed in, in a way that I hadn't experienced before. And, and um, one of the coolest things that I learned was, just I, I do speak on this a lot the corporate environment when I first got there the fitness the so we'd get up in the morning really early and the guys would do one hour workout and it was CrossFit before anyone knew what CrossFit was mm. um, I certainly didn't know what it was and um, so we were in a three uh, by the way FYI I never lived on a base in the 10 years I did contracting I always lived in a villa in a house in out out in the open meaning you had to protect your neighborhood. You would secure the neighborhood, but we were not on a base. So we got attacked, you know, off and on, you know, randomly. They could put RPGs or, or you know, other things over walls or whatever. So coming back to that, I remember um, getting up and working out with these guys. And they would run, the, the first house we were in had three stories. So you'd run the stairs and then they had little, little areas, a pull-up area, push-up area, uh, some crunches, some some concrete weights that they made, and then bear crawls across the roof, uh, which you had to do anyway, or you're going to get shot. Wow. So 
it was awesome. But, but what I learned from them was nobody cut a corner. Um, if, if you stopped, you stopped to throw up. And every guy did it. Nobody complained. And the more I spent time with them, the more I realized something. These guys would never cut a corner. They would never, even when no one was looking, they were giving 110% because their worst fear was to fail the guy to their right or their left. Mm. That was their worst fear. They didn't, dying was something that they had accepted a long time ago. They yeah. expected it, to be honest with you. Yeah. And, and I will tell you this, just kind of a little caveat here. Um, at one point, we, we worked a mission where we were on the Syrian border, and we met up with another team um, that I hadn't worked with before, and we were getting to know each other. And there was a guy um, from SEAL Team 6, former, former SEAL Team 6 guy. And he didn't really know me, and he was freaked out that there was a former cop there. Now, by this time, I'd been doing this for a few years, and I, you know, you, you either prove yourself or you're gone. So... But he didn't care. He didn't know me. And so we were going on a mission and he felt like we were going to get ambushed. And he pulled me aside and he said something and it, and it really hit home with me. He said, hey, bro, I'm just going to tell you something. You're going to die. So just own that shit, get over it and get on with it. And I was like, that's the best advice anyone could give you. Accept yes. it. And quit dwelling on it because it's getting in the way. Those thoughts are getting in the way of you performing. And if you're not performing, someone else is going to pay. Aww. That's how they think. And as harsh as it was, I was grateful for that. It, it was, you know, it was one of those light bulb moments in my life. Mm. And we, we went on to become very good friends. But um, yeah, it was just a different environment, a different mentality. And you were all you had, you know, while you were there, you were all you had. That's, it was awesome. I bet it was. I bet it was. You know, you, you say so, so much in there that really, I, how can we bring more of that to first responders in the law enforcement, right? Like, so yeah. the, the number one mentality that we have as first responders, right, as especially cops, what do you learn in the academy? What is the thing that we all talk about? I'm going home. At the end of shift, I'm going home. I'm going home. And not that we want anyone to die. We don't, right? But I, I'm wondering... And I'd love to hear your opinion, but I have to say, like, I'm wondering if we are crippling ourselves, if we take a look at social media, right? Because that's what we're all consuming constantly. And it's, I mean, and anybody can put anything out there. So it's not necessarily that we're, you know, um, taking in good information and, and feeding our brain with good shit, right? Anybody with a mouth is spouting off and saying shit, right? And it's not that I don't think that we want to come home. And it's not that the Navy SEALs don't want to come home, but they're just, they're prepared to do their job so good that, you know, you know, to be a casualty, it is, it is what it is, right? Like that's what they're prepared to do. Like, I'm just wondering, are we, I wonder if we're crippling ourselves home, right? Because everyone's so afraid to die. Like, Oh, we can't do this and can't do that. And holy shit. Does that make sense? Yeah. Let, let me tell you what, I think yeah. you just hit on something I've never thought of before. And I think this is going to be gold. If we don't get anything else today, we just nailed it right here. You know what you said? You, you said you think we're crippling ourselves. We are. You want to know why in, in this environment? We shouldn't be saying, I'm going to go home tonight. Our focus should be, I'm going to hold myself accountable so my teammates go home tonight. That's it. That's if it. If we went to work every day and our goal was to make sure that our partner went home tonight, yes, we would be so much more effective. 100%. And think, of, okay, but this is what I want to talk about is the camaraderie issue that we have. And I don't know what SWAT was like for you, and I'm sure you guys had good camaraderie. But if we look across the country, 
Okay. And we look at the camaraderie and the morale throughout a lot of different police departments. They're at a low right now. We're at an all time low right now because we have leaders and supervisors. I mean, we have fucking chiefs that are face down with their hands behind their back with the protesters. I mean, we have things going on and I'm just saying, and like what you just said, right? Like, how do we, how do we build that? Step one right there. Is it all about us going home at the end of the night or is it about my brother or my sister going to go home at the end of the night? I don't give a shit what happens. That's, you know, I don't know. I think we need to be thinking about that mindset. What do you think, Dave? I, I think that that would change everything. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that we are capable of so much more when the person we're doing, whatever we're doing for is someone that we love unconditionally. Yes. Um, you know, I, I could take any mom and she could be five foot three and 110 pounds. And she, she would never picture herself getting in, in a, in a full on brawl with a guy, you know, six foot, 220 pounds until he touches her kid. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, all the risk, all the reasons why not are gone. All she knows is she's going to fight to the death because she's fighting for something that she loves unconditionally. That's her child. And I think we are capable of loving each other unconditionally, especially when we're all we have. Right now, I think law enforcement, first responders are more alienated than they've ever been from the public. And um, it, it's not that I, I don't think the majority of people choose that, but social media is loud. Yeah. And so they feel alienated. And, um, you know, look around you. You're, I, I tell everybody, you're at war right now, man. And the guy to your right, the gal to your left, that's all you got. Yeah. That's all you got. If we put other people first, the fight will be way more effective. Yes. And, um, and, and I think we, we will also bond. You know, there, there's only one thing that can, can overcome shitty leadership at the top, and that's unity at the bottom. Boom. Because, because sometimes Somebody write you're that just down. in that situation. Th that's amazing. You know, Dave, because I've been wondering and I've talked to a lot of different police officers, a lot of departments, right? A lot of first responders. And, and it's not just PDs. Um, you know, we can look at FDs, we can look at, you know, we can look around at correctional facilities, dispatchers, and they're all, it just feels, it just feels like here's the top, here's command. And then here's everybody on the bottom. Now, meanwhile, everybody on the bottom are feeling like grunts. They're like, nobody likes us. I don't even like us. I don't like this guy, Bobby. He's out to fuck me over. Sally's only out for herself, this and that. And then we're, we're eating our own. That's the environment. You, I mean, you've been a police officer for years. I mean, we tend to eat our own right? And the reason I love having this conversation with you is because Navy SEALs are the exact opposite. And you've had the opportunity to talk to both and be on both sides and work with all of us. And so I'm wondering how we can, I wonder how we can just start shifting that. How do we just start shifting it? We just start talking about it. I think you need to say, you need to take, first of all, uh, and, and let's be clear, we're, when we talk about the SEALs, what we're talking about is we're talking about, um, the MARSOC unit from the Marines, which is similar to a SEAL team, right? You're talking about the special forces in the army and, you know, other special operations teams, maybe even in the air force, each, each of these military groups has their own guys that are like uh, similar to the SEAL. So let's just say that whole special operations group, their culture is a culture of um, accountability, mm. personal accountability. And so if you, if you can't be personally accountable, you're gone. They'll just blackball you right out of the team. You, you won't even be deployed. Uh, mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you wear a trident. If you're a piece of shit, you're going to get pushed out. 
because there is accountability. First of all, your own accountability, right? Hold yourself to a higher standard on behalf of others. That's the key. And then second, as a group, the group needs to hold themselves accountable. And if they've got a bad apple, the bad apple's got to get crushed. And we don't do that in law enforcement. We don't do that. What we mm -hmm. do is we, we form our cliques. Yeah. I've, been, I've been on a squad and it's like, okay, we got two shitheads out of, you know, out of 15 guys on this squad. What do we do? We avoid them and we form a clique on the squad. What should we really be doing? We should be holding them accountable yes. because they represent all of us. Yes. But it's uncomfortable you know, and, and not all of us like to do that. So it's a, it's a tough thing. It would be a tough shift in culture to do that. But if you ask me what I've learned by being around these, these guys all these years, that is what I've learned is that they hold themselves to a higher standard and the personal accountability and then transitioning to the team accountability, it's at a level that I've never seen before. And I tell corporations all the time, if you had a group of people in your corporation, as a corporation, you did this, but I'm talking about, you know, maybe it's HR, maybe it's a management team, whatever it is. Can you imagine if everyone held themselves accountable because they were more concerned about the safety of their brother and sister, oh. then how powerful would that team be? And then as a team, if they said, hey, listen, you know, seven of us are on the same page, but Charlie over here, he's not cutting it. We'd rather work without him than have a full team of eight. But, but they need to be backed up by the administration. I, I spoke at a huge, uh, to a huge uh, construction company and you know, they had every single employee out there and I was on stage in this, in this huge venue. And at the end of the speech, I give everybody a challenge opportunity. Anything I said that they want to challenge, they can challenge or they could ask a question. And that question came up. One guy stood up out there in the middle of the whole group and he said, what if, were this and then Charlie's that. And I said, I looked over at the owner and I remember telling him, I said, Hey, Mike, so this is on you. Do you have to be willing to fire that guy, get rid of him because you're saying that you want to make changes from the top and just eat the, uh, um, the unemployment, just eat it. The team is going to be more effective, even though they're down one person and now they're only seven, they're going to be way more effective than they were eight mm -hmm. with a cancer. Yep. And that's, that's how these other teams operate that. So where I'm going, that was a long answer, but it's, it's personal accountability. Number one, set a standard. Everybody meets it because they want to, right? Cause it's not about them anymore. It's about their teammates. They want to meet yes. the standard it's on behalf of their teammates mm -hmm. and then united as a team. Then it's a lot easier to push out the bad apples to, to cut the cancer out, mm. you know? So that, that's, that's what I see. And that's what I preach when I come back. That's something I learned over there from these guys. Amazing. Yeah, it really is. Absolutely. It's, it's eye, eye opening experience over there. You said that you, that. oh, I bet you said that you worked and you did some work in Mexico. Yeah. Was yeah. it scary? Uh, it was, yes. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was really sad. Um, I did some work with some tactical teams there. Uh, some of my most, I take photos everywhere I go, even in my home office. Some of my most cherished photos are from my time in Mexico. Um, unfortunately, almost nobody in those photos is still alive. Um, Mexico is extremely corrupt. The, the cartels run everything. Um, the few officers that are not corrupt, uh, that is just so risky for you not to be corrupt in Mexico. Um, 
I had two business partners that I tried to grow my company, my presence in Mexico. And within nine months, both partners were murdered. And, and, and sadly, one of them was not just murdered. He was actually tortured. Um, former cops, former, former law enforcement. So it's a tough place. I tell people all the time, I'm like, if you think Al-Qaeda is bad, you know, what the cartels are capable of, the money that they have, the network that they have, it's, it's just insane. And it's just right next door. What were you doing? You were just training them up? Training them up. And I did a lot of consulting for private security down there. Um, it was busy for a while, but it just gets to the point where it's just, you have to ask yourself, is it worth it? You know, worth the risk. Absolutely. Yeah. What made you decide to get out of law enforcement? Well, I always knew I was going to use law enforcement to springboard into international stuff. I grew up overseas. My parents were U.S. diplomats, um, and I was intrigued by that. I also felt like I wanted to test myself in, a, in an environment that was a little more fluid. Um, again, I, I don't want to take anything away from, from what we do in law enforcement, uh, but I will tell you this. Um, <laughs> SWAT guys will get mad at me for this, but I, you know, I even say this in some of my speeches, SWAT is sexy and it's cool. And we were highly trained. You know, I, I had the privilege of training um, with the LA County SEB, uh, Special Enforcement Bureau. I think that's the best SWAT team on the planet. And I trained with those guys as a young SWAT guy and went back there a couple times. And, but the truth is this, SWAT is sexy, but we control the environment. I think it's more dangerous to be a patrol officer yeah. because you, you have no idea what you're getting into in at any moment. It's so unpredictable. Mm -hmm. And even now it's even worse. Way worse. Right? Mm -hmm. So um, I craved being in an environment where I would have to react mm. and I, I didn't want to be here. I wanted to be on someone else's turf. And mm. So I had always planned, I was actually doing stuff in Mexico and, and other places before I went to Iraq and Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, to be honest with you, that might be one reason they even considered experimenting with bringing a cop over uh, because I had experience overseas already mm. doing it, my own thing. I ran my own contracts all over Africa. Wow. I was not with the U.S. government. I did that on my own. Wow. So, That's amazing. I, I'll tell you, I will tell you something funny. I just told this the other day to someone. I remember, and I, I won't go too much into this, but I can remember one place in particular where I landed at, at night, like at two in the morning. And, um, you know, they, they pull out a little ladder to the side of the airplane and everybody, you know, disembarks out there. And it, it was so stinky. It smelled horrible, right? I could smell the ocean, but I could smell sewage. Oh. And I remember getting off this little plane. Um, it was a, it was a, like a 737, right? So a smaller jet. You know, I remember getting off the plane and I'm like, dude, they're either gonna, they're either gonna come and meet me and it's gonna go really well or I'm gonna freaking get beheaded on TV because it was a Muslim country. And at the time, you know, I mean, Africa is very unpredictable. Yeah. And I just remember having that thought and it worked out obviously because here I am. Because here you are. But uh, it's been a fun life. You know, I've, I've, uh, I pointed at something I wanted to do and then I've chased it and, and it's been great. Yeah. How, how do you, so I talk a lot about this with my first responders is, you know, you're so much more than the job and you are the epitome of that. How did you, how did you do that? Um, well, you nailed it right there. Um, you're, you're so much more than that. 
uh, I think early on, like I said, I, I, you know what, it wasn't that I didn't have direction. I was trying to decide. I got into law enforcement because I wanted to end up overseas, but I needed the background and I needed to validate myself. So I would qualify. Mm -hmm. My little brother stayed at Las Vegas Metro. He did 23 years there. He's a superstar cop. And, um, you know, that's a whole nother story with that guy's accomplished in his career. But it wasn't for me. Um, I wanted to be somewhere else. So I, you know, like, here's how it started um, with Mexico, to give you an example. I saw that the U.S. Embassy was sponsoring a um, security, a three-day security conference. And I wrote a little blurb and I submitted my name and I said, hey, if you're going to counter a kidnap, you have to understand the dynamics of a kidnap. And that's what I'm going to come and speak on. Well, since kidnapping was going crazy back, at, you know, during that time, the response was absolutely, we're excited to have you. The problem is they didn't know I was, you know, a 25 year old SWAT cop out of Vegas. You know, they thought I was someone else, I guess. But you know what? I just said, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to bring to the table. And the next thing I know, I got invited and I paid the money to have a booth. And I left Mexico with probably seven or eight contracts. Wow. And yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's what you have to do is say, I want to do this. And then stop making excuses for why you can't. Mm. That's I love the key. That. And, and I'll tell you something else. To, to all of the listeners here, you guys have the most badass stories on the planet. If you're a first responder of any type, you have the coolest stories. And I have had people say, dude, I'm not you. I don't have stories like you do. And I look at them and I'm like, are you kidding me? Didn't you just do this? Didn't you just do that? How many... You know, how many code runs have you done? Mm -hmm. Oh, like 200. You've run code in a police car or an ambulance 200 times? That's insane. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's something. Yeah. How many accidents have you, have, have you had in that? One or two? I'm, I'm just saying, if you start looking at yourself, you realize how unique you are. I know. But the problem is, is we hang around with people like us. Yes. So we don't recognize that we're 1% or less. A hundred and ten percent. I've been speaking on this for years, years, because it is true. And the thing is, is that not only are we around people who are like us, we are around people who don't think very like they just think I'm just a cop. This every time I talk to anybody about being being more, I'm like, hey, you know, you're obviously you're hitting that rough patch. You're you, between year seven and 10. Like you could be going downhill. We got to, we got to do something. This is the time. And they're like, oh, fuck, I'm just a fucking cop. I mean, it's all, I'm just got another 15 years and I'm out. And I'm like, whoa, 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 hell no. And this is, this is where you're failing. This is do not succumb to this job like this. Like you are so much more than a cop. And, and I just wish, I wish all first responders in every capacity would just know what they bring to the table. But Dave, what I love about you is you're out there showing them. You're like, yo guys, look at what I'm doing. Which leads me to my next question is how do you become connected to organizations like Blackwater and stuff like that? Well, I, I got lucky when it came to the contracting, um, just because somebody had introduced me to the owners of, you know, SOC, which was competing with Blackwater. So I got very lucky, but, but to be honest with you, I was actually working with a company at SHOT Show called uh, Magpul before anyone knew who Magpul was. I met Rich when he was working out of his basement in Colorado. Wow. And uh, yeah, and he is a, a superstar, one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet one of the smartest businessmen I've ever met in my life. Mm -hmm. um, 
so sometimes there's luck, you know, there's a lot of luck involved, but I also believe you create your own luck. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be dynamic. You have to be outgoing. You have to, uh, well, let me back up when you're dynamic and outgoing. What I mean by that is this, let's just say that, um, if I could get, first of all, get past this mental block that you just talked about that I'm nobody, I'm just a cop. Mm-hmm. Well, didn't you drag someone out of a burning house the other day? Mm-hmm. Don't tell me you're just a cop. You, you saved a human being. You risked your life to save a human being. Cops and, and first responders, you know, in the fire department and, and ambulance, they do this every day. Mm-hmm. And they just don't recognize how amazing what they do is. So first of all, you have to overcome that. I'm just a whatever. Then in order to be dynamic, what you need to do, okay? Because people want, they gravitate to others that are dynamic and, and have this thing about them, right? Magnetic. Well, you know how you become magnetic? Everyone you see, you compliment. Tell them how awesome they are. I don't care who would, I don't care if it's a homeless guy. You know, if you're a cop and you have to talk to a homeless guy and and the first thing out of your mouth is, man, I love your jacket. Mm -hmm. That's a cool jacket. You know what I'm saying? Look at everybody and say, this is a human being. Yes. And as you grow, what what I've learned, what's happened for me inadvertently is, um, you know, my, my, I've got a superstar wife that, you know, is always telling me to focus on others. Thank goodness. And, um, that's one of the things that she's always told me. She's, she's always reminded me when people are talking, ask about them, mm. acknowledge them. Mm. And that's how, how you're going to get noticed. And so then a company, you know, will say, man, we, you know, we like that guy. We like that gal. She's, you know, she's awesome. Um, you know, Hey, Autumn, you know, we want to know more about you because everybody's looking for somebody that can deliver a message. Yes. And um, I mean, let's face it. I think generally speaking, first responders have that gift. A hundred percent. But they just aren't acknowledging it. Nope. You know, let's take, whether you're a cop or whatever, you're coming into a situation, maybe it's domestic, you're de-escalating. Do you know how hard that is to, mm-hmm. to, to verbally de-escalate a situation mm-hmm. that, that could be really bad? And then you've got these, these people that are first responders on the medical side crawling into a, a vehicle where the person may or may not die. They're severely injured. And yet these, these men and women are talking to them and calming them down and comforting them in their last moments, maybe. I, I mean, you guys are all gifted. You just need to acknowledge it, embrace it, and then do something with it. Absolutely. I, I could agree to it. Yeah. But it's, it's not easy. You know, we, we look in the mirror and we see all the flaws. Mm-hmm. that's the it, problem that is the problem and then we focus there and we focus on the flaws um yeah and that's the problem so let me ask you this so t- let's let's fast forward to today for a few minutes i want to i want to talk about some current events i heard that you did something pretty cool recently you got to uh kind of mediate tell me what you yeah. did front lines i want let's talk about it yeah, that was uh, really interesting. So we made national news here. Um, I, I live just a little bit outside of a city called Provo, Utah. And um, the Black Lives Matter. So in Salt Lake, we had riots uh, last month or a month ago. They, you know, very destructive. They flipped over police car, injured police officers. It, it was crazy. Something you don't expect to see in Utah. But then they had a, uh, they've had a few protests in Provo, which is a very conservative, smaller town, 
Um, about 116,000 is the population, uh, 115 cops maybe. And what ended up happening is, this is about the fourth or fifth protest they'd had in Provo with Black Lives Matter. And, and there hadn't been an incident, you know. Um, but on Monday night, someone in that group, uh, they unexpectedly moved from where they were and they blocked an intersection. The police didn't know they were going to do that. They're, you know, very reactive trying to get in front of it. And it scared the hell out of everyone at the intersection. Uh, they started banging on cars. Of course, they're, they say that that's not what happened, but it, we have video. It's very obvious what happened. Hmm. They start banging on cars. Now, remember, these poor civilians, what have they just seen happen in other cities? People getting pulled out of their vehicles. And so one of the guys was just trying to get out of the intersection. He started a right turn, saw people blocking it, made a, you know, started east to the left, and a guy pulled out a gun and shot him through the passenger window from the, BL, the Black Lives Matter organization. Now, they say it's not one of their people, but they didn't turn that person over to law enforcement who was there within a minute. Mm -hmm. So imagine now we've had a shooting. The shooter was in the Black Lives Matter group. No one helped the police in the investigation by saying, there he is, because he put his gun away, and then they allowed him to stay in the group. He continued to protest, pulled his gun out later on, and broke the window of another car. Wow. So, yeah, so a couple days later, they're going to protest again in the same place, the same group, but this time, the civilians, the citizens in the area had enough, so they're going to mm -hmm. show up armed, which they did, and I had the opportunity to, to volunteer. I went to the local police department. Um, I have access to a lot of tourniquets. I took 40 tourniquets, gave them to the PD, said, hey, Let's not have the officers use their own if there's a problem. Let's have them use these so that the one that's on their vest stays on their vest. Um, and by the way, I've got a guy that, that between the two of us, we can mediate between these two, thing, these two groups and keep this powder keg from blowing up because the last thing you want is have someone antagonizing and have a uniformed officer have to step out right. and do anything because they're gonna make a big deal out of it. Yeah. And um, I was really surprised when they said, do it do it because you know, they can't say that they invited me to do it but they can just say hey you know the risk if you want to do it do it and it turned out to be a really cool experience uh, i brought a, a young man with me his name is tango towns uh you know his parents were both crips he grew up in south central la he got a football scholarship to the university of utah put himself through college has a degree sharp guy and he hates being he hates being categorized because he's black as a victim. He hates it. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't there supporting either group. Um, but the 2A group, they were just there to make sure that no buildings, no businesses were, were, were broken just to keep the violence down. Plus, they just had a civilian, a citizen, a fellow citizen get shot right. two days earlier. So anyway, yeah. Bottom line is I got to be in the middle of that with this, with this uh, amazing young man and we were able to defuse a, a few of the situations that arose and uh, it, it went off without a hitch and uh, it, it was awesome. So that, that sounds so amazing. Yeah, it was, it was a great opportunity. We need, I think we need more like that, right? We need more, uh, I, I don't know what the term is, do we call it bridging the gap or I mean, what do we, what do we call it? You know what I mean? But I, I think we need some more of that. 
you know, law enforcement officers such as yourself, but you're not showing up as a cop. And then you have a gentleman, you know, who, who can, you know, who, who's black and who can, they can relate to, right? Like, so they, they, they feel heard black lives matter organization feels heard, but then we can come to some sort of resolution. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, there, there were the, the two main gals from the, from the organization, they were, they were great to work with. They didn't, um, you know, they, they didn't give me any issue. They were grateful that we were there, that there was a buffer. Um, and you know, they still have their agenda and they're going to say what they say and do what they do. Um, but we had conversation and, and I thought that was, I thought that was a huge step in the right direction that, I, I, one lady for, at one point, she waved me over. She said, Hey, Dave, we're concerned. I, I don't understand. Do we go this way or that way? What's the rule? And, you know, the fact that she would ask me that, you know, shows that they wanted to, they wanted to get their message out, but they also wanted to be compliant with the rules that were set forth by the city of Provo. And so on all sides, the Provo police department, the Utah County Sheriff's office and all the other supporting agencies, they were fantastic. They were very professional, but they were prepared. And then the two opposing groups, um, you know, they, they obviously had different ideas. And some of the things that were being said in the, through the, the megaphone were inflammatory, but nobody reacted to that. Yeah. And, and, and I think a lot of that had to do with, you know, Tango and I were out there in the middle. And I'm not taking credit. Tango, Tango was a superstar. Out in the middle, being able to say, hey, what are you accomplishing with that? And actually having a discussion. But cool. um, I don't know if it could be repeated, you know, on a larger scale because there are so many Antifa hijacking this message. They want violence. They want a confrontation. And I don't understand what they're doing there and why they're allowed to be there by these groups um, because they, they've completely uh, diluted the message that, that yeah. these, you know, these groups had in the beginning. I, I told, you know, one of the ladies, you know, there, there wasn't anyone that I know personally that didn't see George Floyd get murdered by a cop. We all saw that. Mm-hmm. And, and we validated the protest and, and agreed 100% that there needs to be some change and that, that was, it was what it was. And those guys, you know, especially that particular officer, they need to pay. There, there had to be justice. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, people that weren't even part of the movement became violent and hijacked the movement and it took away from what the original message was and so now we're more divided than we were before and it, yeah and it's continuing it's just continuing and when do you think it, when do you think it's going to stop i don't know uh that that's that's a really good question um well that's not true i, I think it will stop when it's not productive anymore but it will continue to be productive as long as we have spineless mayors and spineless city councils and others uh, and, and even some spineless leadership in law enforcement that lay down on the freaking ground, mm-hmm. you know, with these people. Um, I don't understand it. I don't get it. They, they forsake the men and women that are good men and women behind the badge. Yes. And, and the, as leaders, when you accept what these other people are saying, which is, you know, generally a lot of times they're saying all cops are bad. Let's just yeah. get rid of them. Right. When your leadership is acknowledging that, I mean, What's, well, what's the 
Exactly. Well, what's that saying about the leadership, right? So then we go back and to what you're telling me, you know, about, let's go back to how like the SEAL teams or the special operations teams, their culture. Let's go back. And I don't know why this, I just don't understand why we just can't apply this shit. I have, I just can't figure it out for the life of me. This is what we need to be doing. We need to stop treating cops like they're just everyday mom and pop people. And we need to, they, we ourselves, police officers, first responders, we need to start fucking training and we need to start holding ourselves at a way higher level. You know, you said it when you first got on here, you said, you, you said, some, you said something about, you know, are you gonna, are you gonna fight to the death? Or are you gonna, or are, or are you gonna like call for backup? And you're like, no, like I just, or whatever you said, I don't want to mix up your words, but the, the idea was that, you know, you're just not gonna, you're not gonna stop. Right. And, and I think, and, and you're highly trained on that, right? Like you train and train and train and train all the time, right, Dave? I mean, you wouldn't be where you're yeah. at even if you didn't. We, ha- we uh, had the opportunity. We talked to Jason Redman. You obviously know Jay. Um, we, we had an opportunity to talk to him a little bit ago, and that's what he was saying. He was just talking to us about how, like, you know, special operations and military, you, you guys put months and months and months into your training, right? And what do we put into our training for law enforcement? Hours. No, it's no, there's no question about it. You know, we can't change the culture within law enforcement. If the, if the people behind the badge don't be, don't feel valued by the agency that they work for. Mm -hmm. And the way that you're showing you value them is you give them better training. I I think we need to shift the culture, but the culture can't really change until we give the officers the training that they deserve and they need to, to survive. And could we train them better to deescalate? Absolutely. Could we train them better with ground fighting? I mean, I think our defensive tactics nationally is a joke. A hundred percent a joke. Why are our officers not training weekly? I have no idea. No idea. Well, how many hours did you train in the Academy on defensive tactics? A few hours. That's it. Now you go do a 20 year career in law enforcement. You will never train defensive tactics again. You know, maybe a refresher for an hour. Mm-hmm. during a during a administrative training day right um it, it's just crazy and yet you're expected to be able to physically defend yourself or somebody else and they you know they have all these steps in the use of force continuum but if your if your training at that level was elevated you might not even make it that high so there, there are a lot of changes that that we need mm-hmm. but those changes cost money you know and that's a problem right now. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to take money away instead of saying, I think if you invest more money and say, hey, listen, we're going to elevate the standard of training for yeah. officers. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think if you elevate the standard of training for officers, you're also going to elevate the candidates that you start getting. 110%. Absolutely. But we're no. not there. It's a bureaucracy. Yeah. And then when we start doing that, then the mentality will change. It becomes less about I and it comes, becomes more about we, you know? And I think- yeah. I think, I think that's the mentality shift. I don't know. I have to just say, you know, we've talked about a lot of things and you inspire the hell out of me, but I will say that that really, really just like blew my mind. I'm like, wow. And I just want everybody to just listen to it. It's so simple and it's like all in front of our faces, but it's just everything. And I think that is, that is what is such a huge shift that needs to be changed. The mentality of I'm going home tonight, you know, and because that's, I mean, in the Academy, that's all it is. Yeah. You've gone through, you know? It's what it is. I'm going home tonight. We're going home tonight. Going home. Yeah. Anyways, Dave, tell us where can we find you? Where are you hanging out? So I'm on Instagram. Um, 
you know, we have, we have you tactical. That's kind of fun. It's Y O U tactical underscore nation. That's kind of fun. You know, we do some civilian training on there. We, we uh, do a lot of videos. We just kind of go over why this video went this way or that way. Um, you know, with shootings or other, other things. Um, but like what's that. most, and then it's you tactical.com. But, but what, what's most important to me near and dear to my heart is what we're doing at fight back nation. Fightbacknation.org is the website. Um, Fightbacknation on Instagram. The work that we're doing with the schools um, on surviving and overcoming an active shooter. Um, I think that's really important. Yes. And everybody's talking about it and everybody's worried about it. If you're a parent, you're concerned. What is your school doing for your child? And uh, again, this is the exact same thing we're talking about with law enforcement. Those teachers need the training. Our focus at Fight Back Nation is um, worst case scenario, like in Utah, I, I would say comfortably if there was an active shooter to school, the moment from the moment 911 gets the call, it's a three minute response. That's insane. Mm -hmm. That's a huge accomplishment. Nationally, we're, we're, we're at five minutes. Yeah. That's incredible. Wow. That's an incredible change from Columbine. Okay. Yes. We're right there we have these superhero young cops training the academy coming out ready to run in and face an active shooter but for those three to five minutes those teachers those educators have to be their own first responder and so that is our mission is to say look worst case scenario if you had to fight back we're going to give you a technique that's going to allow you to win as soon as these mass shootings are no longer productive they'll stop just yeah. like hijacking airplanes has yeah. stopped yeah. Because untrained people on that fourth airplane stepped up and took those terrorists out. And, they, and we haven't allowed it to happen since then. So anyway, I know that was a long ramble, but yeah, mm -hmm. Fight Back Nation, we need all the help we can get. We need all the support we can get. And it's fightbacknation.org or fightbacknation on Instagram. Dave, we've loved having you on. You, you're just a wealth Thank of knowledge. You. I love, I love how driven you are. And I think you're such an inspiration to all of us. And I, I want to just say thank you very much. Um, Sheepdog Nation, going to go in the show notes. You're going to be able to get to find Dave. You're going to want to go hang out with him. He's awesome. Um, and Dave, we'll see you next time. Sheepdog Nation, it's been real. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. They buried me in the water and I came, I knew. <laughs> now I'm baptized in blue. I'm a fighter, I'm a winner, never quit. I refuse to lose. I got heart and I got gritty. I'm a warrior that's been baptized in blue. I'm a warrior that's been baptized in blue. I'm a fighter, never winner.
life come take it, it's gonna be a fight I take it to the light, like Will and Bright I wouldn't expect you to understand what I do Only the thin blue line, cause they baptized in blue uh, I'm a fighter, I'm a winner, never quit I refuse to lose, I got heart and I got crazy I'm a warrior, that's been baptized in blue I'm a warrior, that's been baptized in blue I'm a fighter Put me in a cage, let me brawl Sometimes I can't help but cry Like why did he die? I know it was him, but it could've been I What about the kids? Uh, what about the spouse? Yeah, now who gon' put food inside them babies' mouth? It's a bigger picture when I officer down Domino effect, Blue Nation, family, country, and town The media don't cover us huh. Well, maybe Fox, cause MSNBC and CNN Surely don't care about cops, politicians More concerned about protecting the legal Instead of laying the law down And protecting the people, let me get off my soapbox Before I curse, I don't see way too many cops Riding in hearse, well I wouldn't expect you to understand what I do Only the thin blue light, cause they baptized in blue, uh. I'm a fighter, I'm a winner, never quit, I refuse to lose, I got heart and I got gritty, I'm a warrior, that's been baptized in blue, I'm a warrior, that's been baptized in blue, I'm a fighter, I'm gonna complete it if that means being deleted I live with the credence I do this for the combat vets and Leos When I'm suited, ready to go It's either friend or foe Only Lord knows what my future's in store I only kill with the hopes to see more So God don't close that door If I take a life, it's him or me With the hopes to survive, not be a good tree I go in situations that you cannot imagine Deal with things that you cannot fathom I'd rather fight for cause than live for nothing So when you read my headstone, you know I died for something You hypersensitive, she complain by justified force You blame the cops first, that don't work, you blame the courts But I wouldn't expect you to understand what I do Only the thin blue line, cause they baptized in blue oh, I'm a fighter, I'm a winner, never quit I refuse to lose, I got heart and I got gritty I'm a warrior, that's been baptized in blue I'm a warrior Baptized in blue, I'm a warrior. That's been baptized in blue. Oh.